You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We're talking this hour about what comes next in Washington as we see the administration of President-elect Joe Biden and his vice president-elect Kamala Harris come together, and as we see them start to tackle some of the really profound challenges that the nation faces. Uh, We want to hear from you this hour about how you're feeling about things, what you make of the transition so far between the Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration. Give us a sense of how you're taking in the appointments that the president is making, the nominations to cabinet-level positions, and what he's saying about how he will deal with the pandemic and how that might be somewhat different than what we have seen so far from President Trump. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, We're going to be joined now by two voices who are really familiar with this process of transition uh, in Washington and in Lansing here in our own state. John Truscott is the CEO of the Truscott-Rossman PR firm. He worked on George W. Bush's presidential transition team in 2000 and, of course, was the press spokesperson for former Governor John Engler. John, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be here, Stephen. Yes. Uh, also with us is Ron Fournier, is president of Truscott Rossman and former Associated Press Washington Bureau chief. He has covered a lot of different presidential transitions as a reporter. Ron, welcome back to the show as well. Thanks for having us, Stephen. So we're going to talk about transition in a minute, but I first want to get both of your takes on the president's reaction to the election. I haven't really talked with either of you since the election happened. Uh, I wonder what you make of this tantrum that is being made by the president and has been aided and fueled by Republican officials who are in some cases embracing really wild conspiracy theories about voter fraud that uh, are not backed, at least so far, by any evidence. Uh, John, I want to start with you. What do you make of the way the party has reacted to this election and the amount of damage it might be doing to our confidence in elections? Yeah, I'm I'm a little perplexed. Um, You know, my first foray into statewide politics was with the John Engler campaign. And we, you know, we didn't have a count uh, on the night of the election. There was still a right. It was all night. Votes out. It, <laughs> right. it was. Um, and at six a.m. the next morning, the AP called it, and our internal count only had us about seventeen hundred votes up. And we're going, whoa! There's still a lot of votes <laughs> out there. Did we win? What do we do? Um, and then, you know, the the total grew, and there were talks uh, about the Blanchard campaign pushing for a recount. That's when the difference was about 5,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And then it grew to 10, 15, and uh, ultimately 17,000 votes. And it was outside the, the range of a recount. And the Blanchard campaign, Governor Blanchard at the time, called and conceded. Because that's what you do. When it's, when it's outside that slim, slim margin, there's no way that you're going to turn around uh, a number of votes that could overturn an election like that. And things move on. The transition starts and and the peaceful uh, transfer of power begins. And that's really what should be happening here. And it's really unfortunate to see what has been going on. I think um, most credible Republicans have have given up on, you know, trying to claim that that, that this was not um, that, that votes were stolen and things like that. And, um, 
you know, I've moved on and, and most Republicans that I know have moved on and you know, this is what happens in America. And you just prepare for the next administration. And and to be clear, John, you are somebody who was not supporting Joe Biden in this election. I can't remember if you were uh, supporting a reelection of the president, but th- this was not your preferred outcome. No, it's, it's not. And, you know, the, the one thing that I've had some great experiences and some not so great experiences in elections you win some and you lose some. Sure. But the thing is that that when you lose, you regroup, you find out why you lost, and you start planning for the next election cycle. It's what responsible people do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron, uh, I've seen a lot of your social media interactions over the last couple of weeks, but but I haven't talked uh, specifically with you about it. Give me your sense of what we're witnessing here. Uh, we're witnessing... Uh I don't know, maybe maybe the most severe threat to our democracy at the hands of a president in in the nation's history because this uh you know, this experiment of ours, this this democracy of ours is more about an idea than it is about a set of rules. And one of the fundamental ideas is, as John says, um a transition of power, a willingness to um uh to understand that the office belongs to the people not a person. And and in this case, we have a president who since early in the summer um, has been setting the stage for delegitimizing uh, American democracy um, by insisting falsely, by lying um, about the um, sanctity of the elections, by claiming that um, mail-in ballots, which go back to the Civil War, are somehow um, uh, illegal. And by claiming against, with, with no, absolutely no proof, because there is none, none there's not even evidence, um, that uh, the election was, was stolen from him. And, you know, there's good people like John who are moving on, uh, but the fact of the matter is that 80% of his party believes that the election was stolen. And um, it's hard to imagine a healthy democracy where um, a majority or near majority of voters um, believe, does not trust the election outcome. And it was cut against um, Republicans at, at some point um, when Democrats don't accept the next election. Uh, this kind of uh, dishonesty and um, um, chipping away at the institutions of our founding idea is a slippery slope that um, I don't know if we're going to be able to recover from mm. um, unless the Republican Party, its leaders, stand up and denounce the president. And, of course, they don't have the guts to do that. So, so John, as I said in the open, you worked on George W. Bush's presidential transition team in 2000. That was another election where we didn't know the we didn't know the results or what the results were going to be into December. Uh, uh, talk about the difference, though. And, and I can remember uh, during that time, being really anxious about what was going to happen, being really anxious about the idea of making sure that people's votes were counted. Uh, some of the same issues were on the table uh, at, at that time that they that they are now. But but just to sort of remind us of some of the distinctions between that period and this period, and then how it all resolved and everybody did move on. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I had been attending a Republican Governors Association meeting, which is always within a few days of the election. And uh, the Bush team came in and said, who wants to volunteer at the transition office? And I said, well, I said, Governor Anger, I, you know, unless you've got something planned for me, I'll, I'll go to D.C. and volunteer, which I did. Uh, stayed with friends and and 
volunteered. And at that time, it was the provisional office. So just like the, the Biden camp didn't have the official GSA uh, budget offices, things like that, neither did uh, the, the Bush team. And so we went and we had offices in McLean, Virginia, and we basically set up what was a shadow uh, transition office that just kind of started the work and and getting things going and until the Supreme Court decision uh, said that that then President-elect Bush had had won. So you know it it it's not as fast and efficient as a full-time uh, transition office, but you can get going. You can uh, start the process, start interviewing people, things like that. So I I assume that's what the Biden campaign has done uh, until they got the official GSA approval last week. Hmm. Uh, if you want to join this conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about the transition process, which is now sort of uh, officially underway and starting to gain some traction in Washington as uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris think through what they want their administration to look like. Uh, do you have confidence in the appointments that they've made so far? Uh, are there things that you'd like to see them do that they haven't done yet? And give us a sense of what you think of their planned response to the coronavirus pandemic, which is, of course, the nation's biggest pressing issue uh, at this moment. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you in. Let's start with John in Rochester. John, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How are you? How are you today? I'm good. Good. I think this transition is just filled with wisdom. I think that um, President-elect Biden is so wise, and he is playing this in a really smart way. Um, so I'm actually really enthusiastic about this transition so far. Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting response, John. I'm glad uh, you called and shared that with us. Uh, Ron Fournier, uh, you've covered multiple transitions during the course of your career in, in Washington. Uh, talk about what you've seen from Joe Biden so far and how it compares? Yeah, my first one was in 92, 93, uh, when I was working in Little Rock covering um, uh, President Clinton's uh, transition from governor to president. And mm -hmm. a couple things stick out that kind of remind me of those old days. Uh, one is yesterday, Joe Biden announced an all-female communications team. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the people who will be speaking um, and doing the messaging for both the president and vice president all um, are women, um, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, we haven't had a all-women's communications team of, of a president. You even go back to Bill Clinton, who was the first to say, I'm going to pick an administration that looks like America, a phrase that Biden's using now. Um, he installed uh, D.D. Myers as his press secretary, mm -hmm. but installed a whole bunch of men around her that really boxed her in and um, didn't give her a chance to succeed. And she had a real miserable couple of years as press secretary because of of um, that old boys uh, club uh, network. And then we also have, I think, the seeds of what's going to be an a, uh, a, uh, internal fight um, going back that stemmed to uh, um, a young man who uh, worked in Clinton's press shop, a guy named Rahm Emanuel, mm -hmm. who went on to become a congressman, a, a Chicago mayor, and now is being floated as transportation secretary. Well, the left wing of the party, um, you know, the, 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 the opposite to the right wing of the Republican Party, which is absolutist and extremist in its own way, um, is already raising heck at the idea of, um, um, of, of the former mayor of Chicago 
uh, getting in the cabinet, and it's, it, it may be a proxy for what's going to be a real interesting and potentially divisive fight between the left and the middle of the Democratic Party. And I think Bar- Biden's going to have a harder time with his own base than he is with, or as hard of a time with his own base as he will with Republicans. Yeah. Uh, th- that that pushback against someone like Rom, for example, uh, or some of the other people uh, that he's floated seems like it will, as you point out, it, it could be one of the more difficult uh, dynamics to kind of wrangle, uh, especially in the early going. Uh, but but some of that, I think, will be resolved by what happens in the Senate. I mean, if if, mm-hmm. if the Democrats can win both of the seats in Georgia, and I, I don't think anybody knows right now whether that will happen, but uh, if they do and they have control of the Senate – gives them a little more leeway to try to do things, uh, you know, that that might please the left wing of the of the party a little more. But if he doesn't, I mean, I think you're right that that um, that it's a finer line. He's got to walk. So I actually think it might cut the other way, Stephen. If, if they if the Democrats win the Senate, the left is going to be very emboldened and going to be very demanding and want more and, and, and will claim credit and will actually will deserve credit for winning Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we'll want more. Right. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Devin in Troy. Devin, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank hey. you for having me. Sure. Um, so um, <clears throat> what I was suggesting or, um, earlier, uh, Barack Obama suffered from one problem. He was too reasonable. You know, he came in and he always presented you know, a more moderate, balanced offer, and then they would pull him to the side. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to borrow from Trump's playbook. And if the Senate wants to give us a hassle about who we confirm into these positions, that what he should, what um, what I would do if I was Biden was to get the most left wing I possibly could, <laughs> put them into acting positions, and then bring in and then you know, try to back off. People. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Put in reasonable people to be confirmed and say, look, I'm perfectly happy with the folks I got right now. And so uh, we that's can a, it's an interesting strategy, and we've seen, I think we've seen politicians try that in the past. Uh, John Truscott, uh, take us back to 1990 when uh, when John Engler won uh, the, the the governorship. Uh, what was the approach to trying to work with uh, the legislature? Now I, it's, you're going to have to remind me of what the legislature looked like at that point, um, and and whether. Uh, Democrats or Republicans uh, had control, but but talk about those early days of trying to you know f- form an administration, but also put together a legislative agenda that you could get through. Yeah, um, well, the the Republicans held the Senate and the Democrats held the House, uh, the House. Yeah. so it was a split legislature. Um, you know, it was really John Engler was a creature of the legislative process. He right. had grown up in it. He had managed it. He had been majority leader, so he had an agenda that he had put forward as as majority leader and we we started to put that in place in addition a lot of the senate staff had been with him for quite a while so they went in and around the administration so it made it easier to have people you knew and you trusted to then implement what you were trying to carry out um, it was really interesting dealing with the house sometimes where we had some of the more liberal members who were were fighting us their chairs of committees things like that and angler said well run what you want you know, well, we'll see what works. So he was always challenging. 
But behind the scenes, he was working with their leaders, the Speaker of the House, for example, that he, who he had a very good relationship with, to then manage it to more towards the middle. Mm-hmm. So there was, and I remember um, debates where where we'd say we'd get back in a room and, hey, I'll beat you up for three weeks, you beat me up for three weeks, and then in the end, we'll <laughs> sit down and get this done. So he, he had a very pragmatic approach. And I think with Joe Biden being from the Senate and a career in politics, probably embodies more of that approach than than someone else. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ron, uh, more than perhaps any other candidate this year for the presidency on the Democratic side, Joe Biden has uh, a stronger and longer termed relationship with Mitch McConnell, who uh, presumably, if Republicans hold control of the Senate, would again be the Senate majority leader. Uh, Talk about that relationship between the two of them and whether it might facilitate a better legislative process than we saw certainly with uh, Barack Obama, who uh, Mitch McConnell just said from day one, I'm just not going to cooperate in any way. I'm going to try to, my goal is to make you uh, a one-term president. Will that be different because it's Joe Biden? No, no. I remember the times John was talking about finally as well, covering the Arkansas a legislature and even even uh, Congress uh, under uh, uh, Clinton and Bush, but it, you know the world has really changed um, since those days. And unfortunately, relationships don't matter as much as as raw power. Um, Biden's base is not going to let him compromise with uh, McConnell. But more importantly, McConnell's base is not going to let him to even talk to Biden. Uh, McConnell said what he said at the beginning of, and by the way, he said it uh, to one of my reporters at, when I was working at the National <laughs> Journal, when he said, I'm not going to let uh, Barack Obama succeed. He, he, he said that because that's what his base required him to say. We, we do not incent our leaders anymore to compromise. We punish our leaders mm-hmm. if they compromise with the other side. Now, this has become a very zero-sum game um, of po- politics. So they could have the greatest relationship in the world, but at the end of the day, um, um, Biden will get hung out to dry by the left if he tries to compromise with Biden. I remember the way they, the way they, the left, treated Obama when he tried to compromise with McConnell. They, they, they blasted him and still um, accused him of being too, too wishy-washy. And and the right, I think, is even more extreme on this. Mm. Um, uh, they're not going to be any more. Um, unyielding towards Biden than they were uh, Barack Obama. So what does that what does, with, what does that leave us with things like stimulus for the coronavirus pandemic, for instance? It, it leaves us uh, with very little getting done. There'll still be a few things that, like stimulus a few months ago, that that served both the bases that that both parties had to have. It got done. Um, but that Venn diagram, which in the Angler days and the Clinton days was pretty big, a pretty big overlap of interest, is now you know about the size of a thimble. Um, we're, 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 you know, I hate to be the cup is half empty guy, but John knows that's me. <laughs> um, we're in we're in a cycle of dysfunction and political destruction um, that isn't going to end until the fundamentals of our politics change. Not one new president or new Senate leaders can be able to change. Um, what is a uh, you know, fund- fundamental problem that starts with us as people, mm. what we expect out of our leaders. Mm. And we just will not let them compromise. 
Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with John Truscott and Ron Fournier. We'll also continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you make of the transition, what you make of the possibility for stable governance once Joe Biden is sworn in as president on January 20th. Uh, You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we can make them part of the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are John Truscott and Ron Fournier. Together, they lead the Truscott-Rossman PR firm. Uh, John Truscott worked on George W. Bush's presidential transition team in 2000, and uh, Ron Fournier, of course, covered uh, Washington for many years uh, and covered multiple presidential transitions as a reporter. We're talking about the transition between President Donald Trump and President-elect Joe Biden, how that's going, uh, how the appointments that he's making are playing with uh, Democrats and Republicans, and about the prospects for productive governance once Joe Biden is in as the president uh, in January. want to hear from you as well. What do you make of all of the things that we're seeing go on in Washington these days? Uh, what do you make especially of the plans as we are starting to see them come together from Joe Biden about how to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to make them part of the conversation here. Uh, John, before we get back to listeners, I want to ask you about what you think is next for the Republican Party um, of course, you, you talked some about what you do after a loss. Uh, both parties have long experience with that. Uh, you, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You pick up the pieces and figure out how to be there for the next election. But it seems to me that there there is a particular issue uh, in the Republican Party that that is represented by the president uh, himself, uh, whose uh, behavior even before the election uh, suggested that he was unlikely to want to go away uh, after the election, win or lose, and what effect he's had on the party going forward, even if he does kind of melt into the into the background. Has Trump altered Republican politics in a way that will make it difficult to plan a future that's not heavily influenced by him? I think he's altered it in in a sense that um, the expectations are that you're going to speak pretty bluntly, um, that you're not going to use uh, political speak uh, and things like that. But where where I see the party needing to go is we we have a lot of young leaders, and I think this is you know across the board our leadership in Washington they're all late seventies early eighties. Mm. It's time for a change. It's time for a turnover and to bring a new attitude and. Um, maybe more civility, uh, if that's possible. 
there are a lot of, and I've always been partial to governors because they, they have to run things. They have to be accountable to people. Mm-hmm. And there's a great crop of governors actually on a bipartisan basis uh, that, that is coming up that could be the next wave of leadership. And then I match that with, if, if you look at Michigan alone, our congressional delegation, and how they work together on a bipartisan basis. And Fred Upton and Debbie Dingell were out front nationally talking about how you can disagree with somebody and still be civil and get along and still be friends. Now, I realize that's that's kind of old school, but I think there's a new wave coming up that that may be able to take us back there. Uh, and again, with, with President Biden having served in the Senate for so long and representing that type of attitude where, yep, you fight it out during the day and then you go have dinner or have a beer at night, you know, I'm hopeful that we can have some semblance and return to that. And and, and frankly, if, if we have leaders to step up and say this, you know, we're going to win or lose based on on this type of attitude. That's that's the way you force change and turn it back into our positive direction. So so I want to go back to the 2012 election and after Mitt Romney, another Michigander, native Michigander, lost to Barack Obama, he said something that I thought was really important. Uh, He said that the party didn't have much of a future if it wasn't going to be able to expand its base of voters, to attract uh, uh, Latino voters and African-Americans and younger people uh, than they had been relying on uh, up to that point. Of course, in 2016, what we saw was the party kind of return to and double down uh, on its on its uh, old base on the on the base that that uh, Mitt Romney was was criticizing. Uh, you could argue that in 2020, one of the reasons that uh, Donald Trump was not successful in his reelection campaign was again the failure to expand that base um, uh, in, in, in meaningful ways. So I guess my question to you is, uh, how do you do that? Or is that even uh, one of the priorities anymore? Is that something that Republicans are seriously thinking or talking about uh, as as a pathway to the future? Yeah, I'll disagree a little bit with the premise because uh, President Trump did uh, significantly increase uh, the vote with the Latino vote. And also the Republican Party moved significantly towards being the party identified with the blue collar vote, mm-hmm. uh, working men and women. I think that needs to continue. Um, th- there has been a fundamental change in, in that perception. I think a lot of it is based on the leadership and, and what people are doing and, and saying. Um, but, but we'll see. But yes, I, I do believe both parties need to be as broad as possible in terms of who they're reaching out to and attracting. It's the only way you win going forward. Mm. Uh, Ron, uh, John was just talking about the idea of uh, backing away from some of the hardened positions and 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 dealing on a more civil level with people across the aisle. Uh, I, I count you sometimes as a skeptic that that's that that's really possible. Do you think? We can. Uh, do you think that we can move in that direction after after this is all over and Biden is uh, is the president? Do I think that that our political system can move towards the middle? Is that the question? Yeah, essentially, we're just toward getting getting things done. Getting things done. Yeah. No, no, because again, unfortunately, no, because um, um, both parties now are controlled by for a lot of reasons. We could go into are controlled by the most absolutist, extreme um, um, versions of themselves, or their hardcore bases. 
that will not let them yield, that will literally punish um, um, leaders of their party hmm. for trying to compromise. Um, it's why you still, to this day, don't have members of the Senate or the House um, or even a significant number of, of Republican governors condemning anti-democratic actions by the President of the United States because they're afraid of not being punished by Trump. They're afraid of being punished by um, uh, of their voters. Mm. Um, and I think um, the Republican Party does have a particular problem because, yeah, you know, they did a little bit better among Latinos because uh, they were able to peel away some measure of Cuban Latinos in Florida to put that state further out of play. And yeah, they, you know, he expanded his base of white working class uh, voters. Um, but if you look at demography, uh, the math just doesn't add up a generation from now for a party that is appealing primarily to white um, working class voters and is losing by super majorities among Latinos and blacks and young voters, mm. super majorities. So, you know, Trump might cut into the margins a little bit, but the Republican Party um, still has the generational demography problem that was identified not just by Romney, um, but by the chairman of the party at the time, Michael Steele, and the, and the whole institutional structure of the Republican Party in 2016, mm. including Ari Fleischer, people who are now in bed with Trump, um, authored a autopsy of the 2016 uh, campaign that said exactly what your premises, Stephen, and I don't think that's changed. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to David in Farmington. David, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Uh, and along those lines, uh, I'm seeing that the uh, cabinet and appointees are of the moderate level, and if you add up all the actual votes of the Great Lakes State, uh, Biden won by like 0.1%, and the moderates are actually the leadership now. You can't use them to win and then say they're not the leadership and base of the party. Mm. But, but I mean, David, the, you know, the, the point that Ron Fournier made was that, uh, you know, there are lots of uh, factions that can claim at least partial responsibility for Biden's win. And the, and the problem is that they all will want something. They will all will want to see their, their hopes fulfilled. Uh, how, do you, how do you balance that? Right, but the... The, the moderates are what tilt to, you know, Bernie could not have won. And uh, that's just the way things are. And mm-hmm. the, the, the moderates are actually the majority. You take a share of the Republicans and a share of the Democrats, they're the actual majority. Yeah, you, I, you may be right. I, th- I think the parties don't articulate that dynamic very well right now. I mean, I think they are both kind of tilted toward outside uh, toward the margins. But David, I really do appreciate uh, the call and the insight. Okay, John Truscott and Ron Fournier, it is always great to catch up with you guys uh, and have you here on the show. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. You're welcome, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, uh, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to take a look at the plan for distributing the Pfizer vaccine and talk about what we know as far as the number of COVID cases after the nation's first big cold weather holiday. A lot of people really fretting about a Thanksgiving surge that could show up this week or next and really ruin the plans for Christmas to be a little better and more relaxed than Thanksgiving was. We'll talk about all of that tomorrow. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. 
We will talk again tomorrow.